anything but sputter. I mean, it's a kind of silly moment. And I think we can almost see a violence that is bleeding into a slapstick. You know, uh-huh. you wanted to behead me? Well, I'm going to behead you. Lop off with a head. Yeah. Um, so there, there's just something that that is faintly ridiculous there that is at odds with some of the more serious political undercurrents in this episode. Good afternoon. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative or two to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Karen Winstead, who has selected two excerpts from Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Artour, How Arthur Was Born, and Bellin, The Night with the Two Swords. Karen will give us more context for these excerpts before she reads them. After Karen reads the first excerpt about Arthur's birth, she and I will discuss it. Then she'll read the second excerpt about Bellin, and we'll discuss that, doing some comparing and contrasting of it with the story of Arthur's birth. Karen Winstead is professor of English and a core faculty member of Project Narrative at Ohio State University. Karen's research interests include medieval literature and popular culture, life writing, gender and sexuality studies, medievalism, and Arthuriana. Karen is the author of four monographs, The Oxford History of Life Writing, Volume 1, The Middle Ages, John Capgray's 15th Century, Virgin Martyrs, Legends of Sainthood in Late Medieval England, and 15th Century Lives, Writing Sainthood in Medieval England. Karen has also written essays on Geoffrey Chaucer, Marjorie Kemp, and on appropriations of the Middle Ages in film and contemporary novels. Karen is also a distinguished teacher who offers courses on subjects ranging from medieval literature to contemporary film and popular culture, including courses on monsters and on vampires. Karen is a repeat winner of teaching awards given by both undergraduate and graduate students. She's twice been selected as the winner of the English Undergraduate Organization's Professor of the Year Award and has twice won the English Graduate Organization's Professor of the Year Award. So, Karen, uh, could you tell us why you chose Mallory, especially these excerpts to read and discuss for today's podcast? Well, um, Mallory is one of my all-time favorite works. Uh, His Mort d'Arthur was composed in the late 15th century in Middle English. It's a massive work uh, in the excellent translation by Dorsey Armstrong that I'll be reading from, it runs to 636 pages. And I think what is particularly attractive about reading from the Mort d'Arthur is that it's a work that was certainly consumed 
orally. So it's most likely reception was not somebody sitting in a by themselves reading silently, but rather somebody reading aloud to companions. And in that process of reading aloud, people would discuss, the text would be performed, perhaps altered through performance. And so that seemed to be an ideal uh, text for us to be reading and discussing here. We'll be replicating some of the original right. conditions of production. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know I can stand in for uh, the original audience, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know before you begin reading the first excerpt? I think one of the things that ties these extracts together and one of the things that attracts me most uh, to Mallory is what I call his poetics of ambiguation. And uh, narratologically, this is very interesting. He does not resort to an omniscient narr- narrator who tells the reader, you know, what the motivations are for why characters are behaving as they should. And this is what many of the original authors of the stories he's retelling did do. But instead, when you listen to Mallory's stories, you have to figure out why characters are doing what they're doing by examining, uh, you know, what they do, what they say about what they do, what other people deduce about what they're doing. And I think Mallory has this incredible respect for the complexity of the human mind. And we don't really know what's happening with these characters any more than in real life. We know what's Mm -hmm. really happening with the people that we are are interacting with. And so it's that element that intrigues me, and I hope we'll get to talk about a little. Okay, terrific. So now here's Karen Winstead reading How Arthur Was Born from Mallory's Mort D'Arthur. It came to pass in the days of Uther Pendragon, when he was king and ruled over all England, that there was a mighty duke in Cornwall who had opposed him for a long time. He was called the Duke of Tintagel. Uther summoned this duke to his court, ordering him to bring his wife with him. She was a beautiful woman and very wise, and her name was Igraine. So when the duke and and his wife came into the king's court, several great lords mediated an accord between them and Uther. The king liked and loved this lady greatly, and he entertained them both lavishly. He desired to lie by her, but she was a passing good woman and would not assent to the king's advances. She told the duke her husband this and said, I suppose that we were sent for by the king so that I should be dishonored. Wherefore, husband, I counsel that we depart from here quickly and ride all night until we come to our own castle. And just as she suggested, they departed, so that neither the king nor any of his council were aware of their departure. As soon as King Uther knew of their sudden departure, he was exceedingly angry. He called to him his privy council and told them of the sudden departure of the duke and his wife. Then they advised the king to send an order to the duke and his wife to return. And if he will not come at your summons, then you may do whatever you like. You will have just cause to make war against him. So that was done, and the messengers had their answer. And that was this, that neither the duke nor his wife would come to him. 
Then the king was wondrously angry and sent the duke a brusque message back. He bid him be well, be ready and provision himself, for within forty days he would fetch him out of the biggest castle he had. When the duke received this warning, he immediately went and supplied two of his strong castles. One of these was called Tintagel, and the other was called Terrible. He put his wife, Dame Grain, in the castle of Tintagel, and positioned himself in the castle of Terrible, which had many exits and posterns. Uther came in all haste with a great military host and laid siege to the castle of Terrible, and there set up many tents and pavilions. Both sides fought fiercely, and many people were slain. Then, due to this great anger at the duke and to his great love for the fairy grain, King Uther became sick. Sir Ulfius, a noble knight, came to King Uther and asked him why he was sick. I shall tell you, said the king. I am so sick for great anger and for love of the fairy grain that I am unable to be well. Well, my lord, said Sir Ulfius, I will seek out Merlin. He shall provide you with a remedy that will please your heart. So Ulfius departed, and by chance he met Merlin disguised in beggar's clothes. Merlin asked Ulfius whom he'd sought, and Ulfius replied he had little cause to tell him. Well, said Merlin, I know whom you seek, for you seek Merlin. Therefore, seek no further, for I am he. And if King Uther will well reward me and promise to grant my desire, then it shall be more for his honor and profit than for mine, for I shall cause him to have everything he desires. I shall try to arrange it so, said Ulfius. So long as your request is reasonable, you shall have your desire." Well, said Merlin, he shall have his intent and desire. Therefore, ride on your way, and I shall not be far behind. Then Ulfius was glad and wrote on for a while until he came to King Uther Pendragon and told him how he met Merlin. Where is he? Sir, said Sir Ulfius, he will not be long. Then Ulfius was aware that Merlin was standing on the porch at the door of the pavilion, intending to come in to the king. When King Uther saw him, he said he was welcome. Sir, said Merlin, I know every part of your heart. If you will be sworn unto me as you are king, true king anointed to fulfill my desire, you shall have your desire. Then the king was sworn upon the four evangelists. Sir, said Merlin, this is my desire. The first night that you lay with your grain, you will conceive a child on her. And when it is born, you shall deliver it to me and ra- I sh- to raise Wherever I please, it shall be greater worship for you and better for the child because of the great importance of this child. I will agree, said the king, to allow things to be done as you wish. Now make you ready, said Merlin. This night you will lie with the grain in the castle of Tintagel. You shall look like the duke, her husband. Ulfius will look like Sir Brastius, one of the duke's knights. I will look like a knight called Sir Jordanus, another of the duke's knights. But be careful that you do not ask questions or speak with her other men. Rather, say that you are sick, and so hurry you to bed and do not arise until morning, until I come to you. For the castle of Tintagel is just ten miles from here. This was done as Merlin had devised. But the Duke of Tintagel saw how the king rode away from the siege of Terrible, and therefore that night he came out of the castle. 
at a postern to attack the king's army, and through his actions, the duke was slain before the king arrived at the castle of Tintagel. So King Uther lay with the with Igraine more than three hours after the death of the duke, and conceived Arthur on her that night. Before daybreak, Merlin came to the king and ordered him to get ready. So Uther kissed the lady Igraine and departed hastily. When the lady heard the news concerning her husband, that by all counts he was dead before King Uther came to her, she marveled at who it might have been who lay by her in the likeness of her lord, but she mourned secretly and kept her peace. Then all the barons got together and urged the king to make an accord between himself and the Lady Igraine. The king agreed to this, for certainly he wished to be accorded with her, and designated Ulfius to act as mediator between them. So, by a negotiation, she and the king at last met together. Now it will be well for us, said Ulfius. Our king is a lusty knight and wifeless, and my lady Igraine is a passing fair lady. It would be great joy to us if it should please the king to make her his queen. They were all in accord and urged the king to agree. Then, like a lusty knight, the king assented with good will. So they were very quickly married on a morning with great mirth and joy. Then Queen Igraine daily grew larger and larger, and it happened that within half a year, as King Uther lay by his queen, that he asked her by the faith she owed him whose was the child within her body. She was too embarrassed to give him an answer. Do not be dismayed, said the king, but tell me the truth, and I shall give you all the better by the faith of my body. Sire, she said, I shall tell you the truth. The same night that my lord died, at the very hour of his death, as his knights claim, there came to the castle of Tintagel a man like my lord in speech and appearance, and with him were two knights who looked like his two knights, Brastius and Jordanus. So I went to bed with him as I ought to do with my husband. And the same night, as I will swear before God, this child was begotten upon me. That is the truth, said the king, just as you say. For it was I myself that came in the likeness of your husband. So dismay you not, for I am the father of your child. Then he told her how Merlin had arranged it by his counsel. And the queen made great joy when she knew who was the father of her child. Okay, great, Karen. So, um... Mallory packs a lot into that. Oh, he does. <laughs> right? Um, and I think what you were saying before the reading about, you know, the way he, the narration is handled, right? We're not getting interior views. We're not getting motivations. We're getting external action, and we're getting dialogue, mm-hmm. right? And and as you were saying, I think that, that um, sort of invites the audience to do a lot of inferencing mm-hmm. about motivation and, and these kinds of things. So maybe we could start to talk a little about that combination of, um, you know, narration, uh, reporting of action, mm-hmm. um, dialogue, and readerly inferencing in relationship to characters, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, one one that stands out, and one we might start with then is Egrain. Right. What 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 seem to be her motivations here and and how, uh, you know, how do we think about um, some of the decisions she makes? 
Well, you know, it's she's a really interesting character. And this story was told a couple of times before Mallory had it. And the first time we knew nothing about her. Um, it was a story of two men who were at odds with each other. And the Duke um, was concerned that he would be dishonored. And in the other, it was a story of a woman who loved her husband and did not want to sleep with somebody else because she was devoted to the man that she was married. Mm-hmm. And Mallory gives us something very, very different. And from the beginning, this is Egraine's story. And she is the one that will not assent to Uther. Mm -hmm. And she goes to her husband and she says, "Um, you know, I think we need to get out of here because I feel that we have been brought here so that I would be dishonored. So it's her honor that we're concerned with. And And she's the agent that gets them away, right? She perceives it like the Duke Duke is like – Secondary. uh, Yeah, exactly. We don't know whether he noticed it at all, whether he cared, whether he was flattered, whether he would have been fine if his wife slept with the king. (laughs) We don't know anything about him. him. Yeah, he is just really out of the story, except in his function as her husband. And it's all about her, and she does not want to be dishonored. And so she is the one that says, we need to get out of here, and so we get out of here. And she was from the beginning very very important because the king needed to make peace with the duke and her. So she yeah. was always an agent in here. She was, you know, an, she she and he, the duke, were partners in this marriage and not uh, a lord and her sub, and his subordinate. Right. Okay. And so we don't know what her feelings for her husband are. We don't know whether she loves him too, but we do know about her concern for honor. Yes. And um yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, right away. I mean, the, the, he brought us here to dishonor me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. all about me. And I think that then her character doesn't really come into focus until the very end, that last sentence that I read, mm-hmm. where Egraine is happy when she finds right. out. Right. Because then, you know. I might, and many other people might, be just absolutely appalled at the thought that they were deceived (laughs) in that way. Or um, that the murderer of her husband had slept with Mm -hmm. her in this way, somebody that she had repudiated early. But she doesn't respond in that. We're told that she was happy. And then that, for me, is an aha moment. All of a sudden, I understand Igraine. She is somebody who is concerned with her honor. Mm -hmm. She doesn't particularly care about these guys. (laughs) But it's about her. It's about her honor. And she makes sense as a character. Uh You know, I get her when I read, and then she was happy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the the other thing, too, is her consenting to the marriage uh, with Uther, Mm -hmm. right, after this, right? And, I mean, we get this Wolfius, you know, um, uses the phrase about Uther being a lusty knight, and and, uh, the narrator repeats that, I think. Uh, But then, uh, um, you know, they were quickly married with great mirth and joy, and so Mm -hmm. there's no objection there, but we don't really get a... A strong sense of uh, Egraine's uh, reaction there. No, we don't get a sense that she was 
torn apart by the death of her husband, that yeah. she particularly mourned him. She might not have liked him. You know, that's perfectly mm-hmm. consistent with the narrative that they had a partnership. But she might have found him rather distasteful. She might have been, you know, had she not been married, um, she might have been perfectly happy to sleep with the king. We don't we don't know any of that. Yeah. Um, or to sleep with Uther. We don't know any of that. Until, again, the very end suggests that, you know, she is a woman who just is not particularly um, emotional about her marriage. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, let's keep that in mind and and come back to maybe some of the other characters. So what about Uther here? Um, How how do you make sense of him, um, you know, throughout? We don't really know a whole lot about Uther, mm-hmm. um, except that he is incapacitated by his love for grain, which I think the readers of Mallory would not have considered a particularly good sign in uh-huh. a king, you know, for somebody to be completely incapacitated, to be so bent out of shape that he can't really function without um, bedding this woman. Right. And uh, you, you just yeah. use the word love. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think it's love or lust or desire or, you know, what's, uh, you know, what, what are we invited to infer about you know, the nature of his incapacity, the cause of his incapacity. I think love blends into lust okay. in in these medieval texts, just as they do in the modern in, uh-huh. in modern texts. You know, you talk about people who are, oh, I'm dying for your love in pop songs and things like that. And yeah. oh, what do, what do they mean, love? Nobody's no, nobody takes that seriously. It's just a convention. But there, there I mean, there was deep affection and love between spouses in the Middle Ages. Uh Um, But what Uther is talking about would not have been recognized, I think, Mm -hmm. then or now as this deep, profound attachment. It's really something more akin to to desire. Yeah, 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 right. And then I think in comparing Uther and Igraine sort of on the sort of variable of agency, right? We Mm -hmm. talked about the great agency that Igraine takes – but Uther seems to be more like he he will he says to Ulfius, you know, uh, I'm sick and so mm-hmm. on, and then it's Ulfius and Merlin really who uh, you know arrange everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, wh- what about that? And what are we being something Mallory thematizing something about Uther's kingship or? Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we don't know a whole lot about Mallory. He was a knight. He was in the service of great lords. And I think you can certainly see maybe a commentary on how great lords and princes work. You know, they have their desires and other people figure out how to fulfill those those desires. And sometimes that's not very easy to do. And sometimes that's inconvenient. And sometimes these great lords, you know, um, they are behaving in very ill-judged ways. Mm -hmm. But somehow it's the people like Ulfius and to to a lesser extent Merlin, who's always kind of a wild card in in Mallory's text. But they have to figure out how to deal with these these lords. Right, right. And so they come up with the plan. Um, And, you know, there's a way in which... um, 
you know, Merlin becomes really interesting to me anyway because of he not only devises the plan, right, but he seems to have the power to, you know, <laughs> control the conception mm-hmm. um, and also that he participates, right? Yes. I mean, this this schema that he comes up with, I mean, you know, it's, it's thinking about Harry Potter and Polyjuice Potion, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they they drink the Polyjuice Potion and they pretend to be these other people. There's no particular reason why Merlin has to be there, right? I mean, but he puts himself there, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and Merlin in Mallory is a very dark and ambiguous character. Right. And we don't exactly know what his motives are. We don't exactly know whether he is an agent of of of, you know, providence or of mischief. Mm-hmm. And in this way, Mallory again ambiguates his sources, which present Merlin very well, very much as an agent of God, uh-huh. who is God's agent in working out the divine plan through human history. And there's none of that in yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in in Mallory. I mean, Merlin is ambiguous. The deity is, you know, who knows? Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. But Mallory is not willing to is not willing at all to suggest that a benign deity is directing and guiding human mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, that, well, that's really, I think, um, powerful in the sense mm-hmm. of how Mallory is changing mm-hmm. the source material and sort of giving it his own, his own particular vision. Um, there's two other things I want to get to, uh, touch on here, and then we'll move mm-hmm. on to the, to the next one. Uh, so the f- the first of the two is sort of this kind of casual, matter of fact way in which deaths gets reported. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a, there's a lot of violence and killing in this. Oh yes. Uh, very short tale, mm-hmm. but it's that's like this is part of the condition it seems of living yeah. at this time with you know knights and. Um, Dukes and kings and stuff. Thoughts yeah, about that? And violence in the Mort Arthur is, you know, very quite varied. And here you get a detached, matter of fact reporting of the violence. Elsewhere, you get the same detached reporting of vi- violence that's so over the top that it almost seems to be yeah. slapstick or parody. Mm. So there's a there's a range of how this is done. And I want to do. I do want to say that this is not um, an indication of medieval sensibility or anything like yeah. that, because medieval people were not just inured to the to the horrors of war. And indeed, you see plenty of evidence that you have trauma um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. that was ad- induced by the kinds of acts of violence, just as it's introduced. In- induced by acts of violence today. But yeah, I mean, this is, Mallory is just, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and he is very hands-off. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, And then the other other question is, what what do we make of this as sort of the, you know, birth story for Arthur, right? How how might this um, information, this, this narrative about how Arthur came to be sort of influence our understanding of Arthur's identity and, you know, who he is, what he's inheriting, et cetera. Well, I think that for Mallory and for others um, who wrote Arthur's story, Arthur was an ambiguous figure. I mm-hmm. mean, our ideal of an of a paragon of a king 
is was not shared by everybody in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Mallory, Arthur is very much a mixed bag. He is, in certain respects, a very poor king. Mm-hmm. And I think Mallory used the figure of Arthur to explore what makes a good king and mm-hmm. what makes a bad king. Mm-hmm. And Arthur makes good choices. He makes bad choices. And um, that is, it's that ambiguity that really attracted, yeah. uh, really attracted the, um, Mallory. He had absolutely no desire to portray somebody who was a perfect, ideal, wonderful king. Right, you know? and so, so if he starts, you know, he, he, he arrives as a result of all this, you know, intrigue and uh, deception, et, mm-hmm. et cetera. Then, right from the beginning, we have we can have these yeah. questions. Yeah, right, but, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, why don't we move on then to the Balin, where we do see Arthur as king uh, in action. So, when the king had arrived at Camelot with all his barons and they were comfortably lodged, there came a damsel who was sent from the great lady Lyle of Avalon. When she came before King Arthur, she explained from where she had come and how she had been sent as a messenger to him for a particular reason. Then she let her richly furred mantle fall and revealed that she was girt with a noble sword. The king marveled at this and said, Damsel, why are you girt with that sword? It is not appropriate. Now I shall tell you, said the damsel, this sword with which I am girt is an encumbrance that causes me great sorrow. The sword cannot be removed except by a knight, and his deeds and actions must prove him to be a noble knight, without villainy, treachery, or treason. If I may find such a knight and that has all these virtues, he will be able to draw this sword out of its sheath." I have been in King Rents's land, for I was told there that I might find passing good knights, and he and all his knights tried, and none of them were able to draw the sword. That is a great marvel, said Arthur. If this is true, then I would like to try myself to pull the sword out, although I do not presume that I am the best knight here, but I will try to draw your sword as an example to all the barons, so that every one of them will try after I have tried." Then Arthur took the sword by the sheath and girdle and pulled at it strongly, but the sword would not come out. Sir, said the damsel, you don't need to pull so hard, for he that is able to pull out the sword will be able to do it quite easily. You are right, said Arthur. Now, all my barons, you try. But beware if you are tainted with shame or treachery or guile, for then it will be no use, said the damsel. For he must be a pure knight without any villainy, and of whose and of noble birth on both his father and his mother's side. The greater part of the barons of the round table who were there at the time tried one after another, but none of them had any success. Because of this, the damsel made great sorrow out of measure and said, Alas, I thought in this country I would find the best knights in the world without treachery or treason. By my faith, said Arthur. I believe the knights here are as good as any in the world, but it is not their fortune to be able to help you, for which I am sorry. It happened that there at that time there was a poor knight at King Arthur's court who had been prisoner for a year and a half because he had killed a knight who was King Arthur's cousin. The name of this knight was Boleyn, and through the influence of the barons he was brought out of prison." 
He had a reputation as a strong knight, and he had been born in Northumberland. So he went secretly to the court and saw the marvel of the sword which lifted his spirits. He would have liked to have tried as the other knights did, but as he was poor and poorly outfitted, he did not put himself forward. But in his heart, he believed he could do as well as any knight there if luck was with him. As the damsel took her leave of King Arthur and all the barons, Belen called out to her as he was departing and said, Damsel, I pray of you your courtesy to allow me to try as these other lords have, although I am poorly outfitted. In my heart I believe that I am as likely as any of the others to succeed. This damsel looked at the poor knight and saw that he was a handsome man, but his shabby clothes made her think that any honor he had achieved was done through villainy and treachery. Then she said to that knight, Sir, you don't need to bother, because I doubt you would succeed where all these knights have failed. Ah, fair damsel, said Balin, worthiness and good character and good deeds are not to be found in one's outward appearance. Manhood and worship are found within a man's person. Many a good, a noble knight is unknown to the people, as honor and fortune are not to be found in clothing. By God, said the damsel, what you say is true. Therefore, you may try if you would like. Then Balin took the sword by the girdle and sheathed and drew it out easily. And when he looked at the sword, he was very pleased with it. Then the king and all the court marveled that Balin had achieved that adventure, and many knights were upset with him. For certain, said the damsel, this is a very good knight, the best I have found, and one who is of greatest worship without treason or felony. He shall perform many marvels. Now, gentle and courteous knight, give the sword back to me. Nay, said Balin, I will keep this sword unless somebody takes it to me by force. Well, said the damsel, you are not wise to do so, for with that sword you will slay your best friend and the man whom you love most in this world, and that sword will cause your destruction. I will take the adventure, said Balin, that God will ordain for me. You shall not have the sword at this time by the faith of my body. You will repent of this shortly, said the damsel, for I ask for the sword back more for your benefit than mine. I am very sad for you, because if you will not give up that sword, it will cause your destruction, and that is a great pity. With that, the damsel departed, making great sorrow. And at once Balin called for his horse and armor, as he wished to depart from the sword, and he took his leave of King Arthur. Nay, said King Arthur, do not think you will depart so easily from this fellowship. I suppose that you are unhappy that I have treated you unkindly. But don't blame me, as it seems I was misinformed about you. I don't know, I did not know that you were such a noble knight of worship and prowess, as you obviously are. If you would stay in this court among my fellowship, I will raise your status as it may please you. God thank you, your highness, said Balin. No man is able to praise even half the value of your generosity, but at this time I must depart, although I ask your good grace to do so. To do so. Truly, said the king, I am quite upset at your departing, but I pray you, fair knight, not to stay away too, too long. You will be very welcomed by me and my barons, and I will make amends for all that was wrongly done to you. God thank you, your good grace, said Balin, and made himself ready to depart. Then most of the knights said that Balin had succeeded in his adventure not through might but through witchcraft.
As Balin was making himself ready to depart, the Lady of the Light came to court, and she arrived on horseback, wit- richly outfitted, greeted King Arthur, and asked him to grant her the gift he had promised her when she gave him the sword. That is true, said Arthur, that I promised you a gift, but I have forgotten the name of the sword you gave me. The name of it, said the lady, is Excalibur, which means cut steel. You say, well, said the king, ask what you would like and you shall have it if it lies in my power to give it to you. Well, said the lady, then I ask the he- for the head of this knight who has won the sword, or else the head of the damsel who brought the sword to court. It would be fine for me to have both of their heads, for he killed my brother, who is a good and true knight, and that gentlewoman has caused the death of my father. Truly, said King Arthur, I cannot grant you either of their heads and keep my honor. Ask for something else, and I will grant your desire. I will ask for nothing else, said the lady." As Belen is getting ready to depart, he saw the Lady of the Lake who had been the cause of his mother's death. He had been seeking her for three years, and when he was told that she had asked King Arthur for his head, went straight up to her and said, "'Evil be found! You would have had my head, so you shall lose yours!' And with his sword he quickly struck off her head right in front of King Arthur. "'Alas, for shame!' said the king. "'Why did you do that? You have shamed me in all my court, for this was a lady to whom I owed a great deal, and she came here under my safe conduct. I will never forgive you for this crime.' Sir, said Balin, I am sorry about your displeasure, but this lady was the falsest lady alive through enchantment and sorcery. She has destroyed many good knights, and she caused my mother to be burned through her falsehood and treachery. Whatever reason you had, said Arthur, you should have restrained yourself in my presence. Don't Dare think the contrary. You will be sorry for this, for I have never had such a foul act committed in my court. Therefore, leave my court as quickly as you are able. Then Balan took up the head of the lady and carried it with him to his lodgings. There he met up with his squire, who was sorry that he had displeased the king, and they rode out of town. Okay. So we have another short tale in which so much happens. Mm. Um, yes, indeed. Maybe we could start with just um, some similarities or differences between this and uh, the story about Arthur's birth. We can see, in a way, a repeating pattern. And Mallory is extremely happy with um Repeating patterns, uh, very fond of implementing them, especially with the genders reversed. And so in the first vignette that we looked at, we see Igraine who is trying to function caught between two very powerful men who have their own interests, their own agendas, their own vendettas. And here you can see a man who is Balan, and I think by extension you might see the whole of Arthur Arthur and his court caught in mm-hmm. between um, two extremely powerful women, mm-hmm. the Lady of Lyle, who has sent her, her damsel to Arthur's court, and then, of course, the Lady of the Lake. And you and and Balan is trying to assert himself mm-hmm. less successfully, I think, than Egraine actually did. Balan 
not succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, Things end up really badly for him. But they are both figures who are caught in conflicts that they did not make, that that maybe in Balan's case he does not fully understand. And so the action plays out in that that, um, framework. Right. Okay, good. Um, So one of the things that you know, this kind of jumps out is that um, only someone who is good, right, and without treachery, mm-hmm. villainy, and so on, should be able to uh, extract the the sword from the sheath, right? And ah, uh, uh, but wait, a, well, go ahead. <laughs> that's what she says. That's what she says. We right? don't know if she's lying. And here is where you know we were talking a little bit earlier about how much hinges on dialogue, yes. because Mallory could have narrated it, and then the damsel sent by the lady lady, lady Lyle um, came into Camelot girded with the sword that could only be pil- mm-hmm, pulled right. out by a man without treachery or treason. Yeah, that yeah. would be a very different narrative. And yet, that's not what he said. All you have is the word of the damsel, who, who knows, might believe it. Right. It might be true. Belen might be the person who is pure without guile, treachery, or treason, although what he does doesn't really make right. us a lot make us really confident that he is yeah. that man. Yeah. But yeah. it could be for any other reasons that this sword was enchanted and he was able to pull it out. Yeah, and and the, the revelation of his character is, mm-hmm. is quite striking, right? So, you know, we, we have this exchange between uh, him and the Lady Lyle about, you know, the, you know she's thinking, well, he's an unlikely... Um, you know, unlikely to succeed because he's poor clothes and so on. That that would be a sign of his, uh, you know, treachery. And then he says, "Well, no, you know, the, the clothes are not a sign of that," and so mm-hmm. on. And she says, "Oh, that's true. All right, go ahead." Mm-hmm. And he pulls it out, and she says, "Okay, give me this, give it back to me." And immediately he says, "No, you yes. know, I ain't doing that." Mm-hmm. And then she tries to tell him why he should, and he says, "No, no." And I was like, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> He's not very smart. We know that he was in um, <clears throat> that he was in prison for killing a relative of the king, right. and uh, but that seems like it would be an act of treachery or in treason. Mm. But of course, maybe he had his reasons, and maybe yeah. those reasons were were legitimate. Maybe this guy needed needed killing. Arthur immediately jumps to the conclusion that uh, that Balan was wrongly imprisoned, but I don't think the reader should jump to that mm. conclusion or the auditors. And I think that's something that Mallory's audience would have debated. Yeah. Did the king, you know, is the king way, way, way too quick to say, oh, well, I'm, you know, this yeah. must be a noble and honorable man, right, which gets right. back to the idea that Arthur is not a perfect king. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's barely able to keep order in his own court. He can't keep Boleyn from leaving, which he wants to do. Right. Boleyn just pays no attention to him. He yeah. can't protect the woman who, his, who, who he owes so much to, who has right. come to his court, assuming that she would be safe in his court. Instead, she is beheaded in front of his very eyes. Right. Right. So Arthur does not appear as the yeah. brightest king. Right, the brightest and, and sort yeah. of, right, exactly, and, and sort of most in control and, mm-hmm. and all that, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just to go back a little bit with the this uh, sort of the um, unfolding of the characterization of Boleyn, right? So mm-hmm. then, you know, when um, uh, the Lady of the Lake comes and she says, well, he killed my 
brother, mm-hmm. right? And then, um, so again, we have, again, dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's like, you know, this is more evidence about this guy is just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, off the charts in terms of yes. what we would think of as uh, nightly behavior. Sort happy, you yeah, know. You yeah. get, you're getting an, a picture of a guy who has killed some people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe he was justified. Maybe they did horrible things. Maybe he was in cir- a circumstance that uh, made the killing honorable and mm-hmm. even necessary. But we don't know that. Yeah, right. And then, uh, you know, he he the sort happiness comes out again when he mm-hmm. uh, beheads um, Lady of the Lake, mm-hmm. and um, and so uh, you know Arthur's um, completely you know shocked and and uh, so on. It's interesting that um, both Boleyn and his squire characterize Arthur's reaction as, oh, he's displeased, Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry that you're displeased, and so on. But it seems to me like this enormous kind of under-evaluation of what just happened and and, and Arthur's response and Mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's all kind of understated. And Arthur can't do anything but sputter. I mean, it's a kind of silly moment. And I think we can almost see a violence that is bleeding into a slapstick. You know, uh-huh. you wanted to behead me? Well, I'm going to behead you. Lop off with a head. Yeah. Um, so there, there's just something that that is faintly ridiculous there that is at odds with some of the more serious political undercurrents in this episode. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on those more serious undercurrents? Well, I think that you're seeing a world in which you don't quite know what's what. Mm -hmm. And you have lots of death here that's being alleged and not denied. Um, People causing other people's Deaths, people being upset at the deaths that are that are being caused, accusing each other of acting dishonorably, um, and we do not have the wherewithal to make the judgment of what is right and what is mm-hmm. wrong and what is justified and what is not justified. And I think that Mallory is really getting at the uncertainty that he said, she said, he said, he said, she said, she said, yeah. that you that is a a condition of the Civil War world that he lived in. And again, he was imprisoned. We know that about mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Um, justly or unjustly, some pretty nasty things were alleged against him. Right. Um, and I think that you get a real sense of moral ambiguity and uncertainty about the world. You know, how does the world um, operate? Right. You know, right. to what extent is justice served either by the court or by a deity or by individuals. Mm -hmm. And really, ultimately, it seems like individuals are just out for what they can do, Mm -hmm. muddling their way through a reality, a human condition that they don't really understand. Yeah, good, good. So there's a way in which he's sort of using the fiction to comment on or, or to sort of 
you know, comment on, give insight into the what you said, uh, the political situation, mm-hmm. not just in the text, but, mm-hmm. but outside yeah. the text. Yeah. And I think that one of the major achievements of this and very, very important narrative strategy in terms of giving us this this uncertain world vision is that Mallory never clarifies for the readers. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Um, we never find out right. about right. Merlin, about But he, succe- Berlin. he succeeds in drawing yeah. us into it, right? And, and, yes. and sort of opening, think about this, think about this, mm-hmm. think about this. I'm not going to an- give you answers here, but I want you to be sort of in the middle, thinking mm-hmm. about these uh, possibilities. Yeah, and we inhabit an existence in which bad things happen, strange things happen, mystifying things happen, and it's not like some fiction where we find out how everything works at the end. No, we don't. We mm. never find out. Yeah. And that's the profundity, I think, of the Mort Arthur. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, that may be a good note to end on, but uh, let me ask if there's anything else that you wanted to get to that we haven't? I think we've covered it. Yeah, well, Karen, that was that was really wonderful, and I thank you so much for uh, doing this. And thank you for having me, Jim. Yeah. And, it was a pleasure. Okay, and um, listeners, uh, we invite your feedback um, either on our Facebook page, uh, just Project Narrative, or um, on our Twitter account, uh, at PN uh, Ohio State. And uh, we'll be doing this again in April um, with uh, Julia Watson. More information about that will be forthcoming. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>